great. So we're going to continue on the Christmas story this week. Um, and I want to focus on a familiar passage in the Gospel of Luke, where Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. So let's kick off, um, and I can read it to us. Luke 1, 26 to 38. Ah, there it is. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and you will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give you the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born is to be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. No word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Um, So who was at the carols last week in the morning? Okay. Um, Wasn't the interaction between Mary and Joseph after the angel had visited them just hilarious? It was so good. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to reread it, but I can't be as good as the Joseph because he had this great deadpan thing going on, which I'm going to be a bit more expressive, but I just wanted to read the interaction after they were visited by the angel. So Joseph, have a son and call him Jesus. I wasn't ready for a son yet. We aren't even married. And, if I don't want, and what if I don't want to call my son Jesus? Mary. Joseph, I know this has all come as a shock to both of us, but that is what the angel said, and I really don't know what else to tell you. Joseph, quietly counting his fingers. April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. The timing isn't great, Mary. December is always such a busy month. Are you sure we can't delay for a little while? Mary, I'm fairly sure it doesn't work like that, Joseph. God has chosen me, chosen us, to have a baby and call him Jesus. He is going to be God's own son, and he'll be born in December. So, how do you tend to react when plans change? Because we all have plans, don't we? Plans tend to help us find some purpose in life, and whether that purpose is primarily our work, our relationships, our families, our kids, our home, we all share this common desire for some sort of purpose in life. And because of this shared need for purpose, we also all try to map out exactly how it's going to go. And we really do that so that we can see these purposes, hopefully, fulfilled. The problem is we all share the common experience that no matter how good we are at at making those plans, so often that doesn't conform to how um, how our idea is of how it's going to go. So circumstances that are totally out of our control mess with our plans. We fall in love with other people and they often have different plans to what our plans are. And worst of all, we can get halfway through life and realize that the primary culprit of messing up the plan is ourselves, our own stupidity and our own lack of self-control. So what do we do with this problem? We all have a purpose and we all have a plan, but circumstances, other people, and often ourselves, club together to ensure that life doesn't necessarily always go to plan. So how do we respond when plans change? Well, one option is that we can simply try a little bit harder to attempt to control every aspect of life. 
and try and make it conform to the plan. We leave nothing open to chance. We eliminate risk and relentlessly pursue the life we want. And this approach might actually work for a little while, but then we realize that we don't always have the power you know, to see the plan fulfilled. And we don't always have the power to control all the other circumstances in our life. So what's the other option? <clears throat> well, the other option is that we could simply scale down our ambitions, change the plan, and in some sense, we could just admit defeat, given to the unpredictability of life. We realize that we need to subject ourselves to other people who have stronger ambitions, and we come to terms with the fact that we're simply not good enough. But, and there's a but, what if God actually had a purpose for our life? And what's more, what if God's plan for our life was pretty similar to that blue sky thinking that we had originally before we realized it was too hard to achieve? So back to our reading. I love this interaction between Mary and the angel Gabriel. So Mary's pledged to be married to Joseph, and in those days, that meant that they were as good as married. In fact, they would have to actually get a tour that was going to come in their marriage. So they had a plan, and as far as they were concerned, there was very little that was going to come in the way of it. The problem Mary has in this reading is that not only does the angel show up, but the angel tells her something that's going to completely undermine her plan. And let's face it, that's enough to wreak havoc on any plan. So Mary's told in verse 31 to 33, that she's going to conceive and give birth to the Son of the Most High, which basically means he'll be God, and he's going to be called Jesus, which means he's going to be the saviour of the world, and he's going to grow up and be the king of the kingdom that will last forever. Now, that's enough to put anyone's wedding plans into perspective. Imagine there's Mary picking out her favourite shade of lilac for her napkins, and an angel shows up and tells her she's going to give birth to the saviour of the world. I've planned a wedding, and I can remember not doing much that would take precedence over that plan. So even if we swap out the fact that the baby is God and that the baby is going to save the world, the interventions still have massive implications for Mary. Because in those days, getting pregnant outside of wedlock, let alone to anyone that isn't a man that you're pledged to be married to, will in best result in divorce and at worst in public stoning. So this really is a major spanner in the works. So how does Mary respond well, her response is fascinating. Initially, just at the sight of the angel and his greeting, we're told in verse 29 that she's greatly troubled. This makes sense. I think most of us would be. But what's amazing about Mary is that after little interaction between her and the angel Gabriel, by the end of the passage in verse 38, we're told that she responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So what's happened there? She's gone from being greatly troubled to total acceptance of the plan, which is most certainly going to scupper her plan completely. Well, two things jump out to me. Firstly, she begins to understand that she is favored by God. God favors her. The angel says in verse 30, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. The word the angel uses there for favor is exactly the same Greek word used for grace throughout the whole of the New Testament, Ben told me. Um, so what the angel is telling Mary is that God wants to show her his grace, that God delights in her, that God finds joy in her, that God wants what's best for her, that God knows exactly everything about her, the good, the bad, the ugly, and even more, he loves her more than she could ever know. Undeserved, unconditional, absolutely scandalous love, a love incapable of being earned, unable to be purchased, the kind of love that can only be received as a gift. Mary is favoured by God. So, what's this got to do with our lives? Well, 
What I find most striking about this interaction between Mary and the angel is simply, but incredibly, the powerful fact that God has the most incredible plan for her life. God, the creator of the universe, the very definition of perfection, kindness, God has the most incredible plan for her life. It may not fit neatly into her plan, but it does have, as its starting point, the favor of God, the grace of God, the fact that God is for Mary and that God knows Mary better than she knows herself. And the most amazing thing about the plan that God has for Mary's life is that it gave birth to the plan that he had for Jesus' life. And the plan that God had for Jesus' life means that every single one of us in this room is also established on that grace. Because of Jesus, we are all favored by God. The incredible plan that God has for our life doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. But because of his love for us, it's perfectly tailored to suit us because he knows us better than we know ourselves. So when I was pregnant with Elia, our eldest daughter, we, um, was, someone suggested, us, suggested to us to pray um, for her before she was born and to ask God for words and pictures Um, for who she was going to be and what she was going to be like, a bit like what we just did, just asking God. And we thought, why not? We'll give it a go and see what he says. So Ben and I went into separate rooms and we prayed and wrote down what we felt God was saying. And then we compared notes and we were just amazed at how totally similar the words were um, about Elia. And then she was born and we had two years of chaos trying to battle sleep deprivation. And then on her second birthday, we got it out because we could really see she was starting to flourish and become a little personality. And I was absolutely amazed at how similar the words were to who she was. Um, Words about her being fearless, um, about her running before she could walk, which was all things people constantly said about her in her first two years of her life. She walked when she was nine months. She was quite fearless, actually, and quite frightening to be around sometimes. And... um, also, the fact that she had, was going to have great compassion, and I find with Elia, when we walk around, she's always the first person to have compassion when someone's in need. So, amazing. Really amazing. But what does this tell us? Well, it kind of supports this general idea of Psalm 139, that God created Elia's inmost being, that he knit her together in my womb, that his eyes saw her unformed body, and listen to this, verse 15, that all the days ordained for her were written in his book before one of them came to be. How amazing is that? The same was true for Mary, and the same is true for us. So back to the story. Mary goes from being greatly troubled to total acceptance of a radical plan for her life. How is this possible? Well, firstly, she begins to understand that the new plan has at its foundations God's favor. He likes her. He knows her better than she knows herself, and he wants what's best for her. And the second thing that I think helps Mary get on board with the new plan is that she begins to understand that God actually has the power to see the plan fulfilled. God has the power to see the plan fulfilled. In verse 34, Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Fair question. The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then in verse 37, the angel is so convinced of the power he's talking about that he says, no word from God will ever fail. Other translations say nothing is impossible for God. So the plan has the full force of the power of the creator of the universe behind it. You could probably forgive Mary for being slightly skeptical. After all, she was a virgin. She was already pledged to be married. Her and Joseph were pretty unremarkable people, and they lived in a pretty unremarkable part of the world. But the plan that was being proposed was pretty disproportionate to the people it was being proposed to. And Mary didn't know the half of it. 
in order to fulfill the plan, Jesus would have to overcome the most horrific circumstances and the most violent opposition possible to the point where he would literally have to come back from the death in order to fulfill the plan. How is it possible? The plan has the full force of the creator of the universe behind it. Nothing is impossible for God. So again, what does this have to do with the plan God has for our lives? Well, unbelievably, the same is true for us. The Bible is full of people who, despite all odds, do the most incredible things for God. Church history is full of people who, despite all circumstances, who did the most incredible things with their lives, impossible things. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8, verse 28, and it says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What I love about that verse is that it doesn't promise that we will follow, if we follow God's plans, that our life won't, we won't experience bad stuff. All things is a pretty inclusive statement. You only need to read a couple of stories in the Bible to realize that people following God still experience terrible things. But what that verse in Romans is saying is that whereas the terrible circumstances that inevitably come our way in life that normally cripple us, when we love God, when we pursue relationship with him through it all, he will not only help us through the bad times, in the end, it will turn around and be used for the good of the incredible plan he does have for our lives. God is way more powerful than we'll ever know. He can deliver us from the stuff that comes against us, and sometimes he does. And we've seen the most amazing miracles in this church. And even if he doesn't, even if he battles through the opposition, if we keep our eyes fixed on him, we really can use it for good. So, God has an incredible plan for Mary's life, and Mary goes from being greatly troubled by this radical plan, change in plan, to complete trust and obedience. How? Well, firstly, she begins to understand God's grace for her, the fact he favors her, that the plan he has for her life is a plan to prosper her and not to harm her, that it has at its foundations his unconditional love and favor and grace. But also that the plan he has for her life has the unstoppable power of God behind it, the power from most high. So if like Mary, God has the most incredible plan for our lives, and if we also have the same access to God and his grace and his power, what are we supposed to do? What should our response be? Because the truth is we all have, we don't, well, we definitely don't have the inconvenience or the convenience of a visit from the angel Gabriel, do we? That would certainly help clarify things. I'm also very aware that all of us in this room are at different points in our life. Some of us may feel like we don't have a clue what the plan is. Some of us might might be halfway through a plan. Some of us might be doubting our plan. Some of us might have tried the plan, but it didn't work, and now we're in a new chapter. So what do we do? Well, I think the key to this whole thing is to be found in relationship with God. If God has this incredible plan for our lives, and if God has the favor and the power in order for us to actually see it happen, then it makes sense that we go to him every step of the way. I find Mary's response at the end of the passage interesting. In order to communicate that she's on board with the plan, she says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. And I think the word servant here is actually a little bit deceptive because it suggests that if we're just going to go along with God's plan, then we need to submit to him and be really good at taking orders. And there's probably some truth in that. However, when you actually think about following God's plan in the context of the rest of the life of Jesus and then the story of the early church, I think actually you get a lot more of an exciting picture that it isn't simply a case of order and obey. There's actually a great bit 
um, in the book of John where Jesus is talking to his, his disciples and he says to them, I no longer call you servants because your servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. The author of the plan for our life, the reason the plan is one of grace and favor, the source of the power behind the plan calls us his friends and it's about our relationship with him. Right before that verse, Jesus illustrates this point by talking about a vine and some branches. He says, he is the vine and we are the branches. And in order to produce fruit, in order to live out the God-ordained plan for our life, we must stay in the vine. We need to do it out of relationship with him. And that's why it's okay not to know the plan. That's why it's okay to doubt the plan. That's why it's okay to change the plan. Because God doesn't just give us our marching orders and off we go. Instead, he's with us every step of the way. So whilst I was planning this talk, I couldn't help relating some of these points to um, mine and Ben's story to coming to be here at St. Peter's. So this time three years ago, we didn't have a clue that we would be here and that this would be our story. I remember beginning our exploration of where we would go after our previous church, um, St. Mary's, and being really excited at the thought of God's plan. I remember being so full of anticipation and expectation um, as we started knocking on doors um, to figure out where we'd end up. Um, it was actually a bit of a contrast to that excitement. There was actually quite a lot of disappointment, um, and a bit of confusion, and a lot of uncertainty. But God had his timing um, and his map to bring us here to Brockley. Uh, someone suggested that we should uh, spend a week uh, fasting and praying. So we, um, so, you know, the fasting is that we actually remembered to pray. And um, it was amazing how God started to speak really clearly through prophetic words from random people. So one thing I'll never forget is the way God spoke to us through the Bible. He had decided to read, um, we had decided to read the story of Joshua together during the week where we were praying and fasting. And in that week, five people who had no idea about what we were doing uh, texted us, um, emailed us the verse from Joshua 1, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, obviously, that's an amazing verse. Um, but the real significance was that five people separately messaged us that verse and felt led to send it to us on that week, which was just incredible. Um, and we were praying about a couple of options at the time when those verses came through. Um, and the fact that God's plan for Joshua was to cross the river really jumped out for us because we were currently living in North London and we hadn't dared come down to the south. Um, <laughs> but now I confirm it's way better over here. <laughs> so the point is that through other people... Through the Bible, through prayer, God spoke to us to reassure us that this is where we were meant to be. We don't do it alone. He doesn't tell us what to do and then sit back and just watch us, you know, fail or succeed. He takes us and he takes our hand and he guides us and he comforts us when we need comforting. He encourages us when we need encouragement and he fills us with his power when we need to do the impossible to make the plan happen. And this is about relationship. We follow a person, not a map. And this is what makes the Christian life the most exciting adventure that we could ever, poss ever possibly embark on. So why don't we respond to this? It'd be great if we could just stand.